0: So again, happy July 4th weekend, everybody. We appreciate you being here with us today, whether you are here on our campus or you are watching us somewhere online, listening later on to this uh, via podcast. We are, we are thankful for you, for you being here and being a part. We're especially glad if your vacation plans have brought you here to Chattanooga and you are with us for the weekend. Uh, if you are about to leave out for some of you for much needed rest, please be safe of course, rest and relaxation on vacation. Who gets that these days, right? I mean, nobody. This is, this, this is what, uh, forever in my mind, this is what vacation, that is truly what it looks like. But good luck if that's what you're up to this particular weekend. And if your kids are among the 85 campers and volunteers who are at camp this weekend, don't forget they'll be getting back into town tomorrow around uh, lunchtime, somewhere around 12 uh, p.m., 1 o'clock. Uh, Don't forget to come and pick them up. That'd be really good. Come on. I know you've enjoyed the weekend with them being gone, but come back and pick them up. Take them home. Put them to bed, right? Put them to bed because I guarantee you they have not slept very much. And they'll wake up just in time, just in time for the fireworks, right? They'll wake up just in time. Speaking of that, how many of you are fireworks people? I mean, you love them. I know that uh, Miss Tanya loves it, right? All right, now how many of you hide in the bathroom and hold the dog during fireworks? Some of you are like that? Yes. And how many of you, you like fireworks so much, you do like some people in our neighborhood last night, and decide why wait until July 4th, when you can begin firing off pyrotechnics on July 2nd, right? Yeah. I mean, all night long, the dog was just going nuts. It was like, you told me it was just going to be on the 4th. You told me I had two more days, but it, what's wrong? Some, something's not right. Wow, it is, uh, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy, but uh, if you like fireworks, man, I hope you're able to enjoy that and, and get your feel of it. I know uh, Miss Tanya's looking forward to seeing some in her hometown come, come Monday night. I think fireworks is probably a good descriptor of our nation right now. With every Supreme Court decision or news report or Twitter rant and school board meeting, it just seems like someone in our society is getting, well, they're either getting fired up or they're firing off. And as our emotions rise, our satisfaction falls. Maybe you saw a recent Associated Press, NORC, Centers for Public Affairs research poll, that showed that 85% of US adults say the country is headed in the wrong direction. Guess what, if you were to go and look at a similar poll just two years ago, same thing was being said by a different 85% of the population. One poll out this past Thursday showed that as we go into this, what, America's 246th birthday, only 39% of registered voters said that they were proud of their country. To say at least the emotions that are surrounding tomorrow's festivities and all the fireworks, it's, it's well, it's just complicated, isn't it? So too is our relationship as Christians To our nation. You see, we are regularly being told that life in our society is a zero-sum game. That there are two sides. The right side, the wrong side. And we've got to choose as citizens and as friends of the U.S. which side we are going to be on. We are told it is as simple as that. Just choose. Which side are you on? Which side are you on concerning this issue? Which side are you on concerning these candidates? Which side are you on concerning this law? And not only do we have to decide which side we're going to be on, we are told that we have to declare which side that we are going to be on. And then once we declare, pff, the fireworks begin, right? I mean, that's where the fireworks start. Everything just seems to go haywire. Because all of a sudden, the people who claim to follow the Prince of Peace have n- anything but peace in their life. How about for you guys? Have you gotten caught up in this two-sided, zero-sum contest? Do you wish that other Christians would speak out more? Do you wish that other Christians would speak out less? Do do you just wish everything, everyone would just stop? Stop all the name-calling and stop the posturing? Do you wish people would just start? Start loving, start voting, start organizing? Has your anxiety level over these last couple of years just just gone through the roof? I mean, what's a Christian supposed to do? I want us to spend some time this morning addressing that very question. What is the responsibility of a follower of Jesus that lives in a polarized society? Look, I I know that there is more to be said about this that I'm going to be able to do, and I'm going to try to keep this about 25 minutes or, or so. But I hope this is going to be the beginning of a conversation that serves to simplify a very complex issue. So before we dive in and uh, put on our big girl and big boy pants, how about we um, give thanks to God. Father, we do thank you for the way in which you have blessed our lives, for the way that you have watched over us individually and as families. Father, we, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace and, and for your mercy And Father, we thank you for your patience. We thank you that you're patient with us as we struggle to figure out just how we need to respond in times of polarization. God, we want to be your ambassadors and we want to be able to to shine a light in this world that points other people to you. Father, help us to, to do that in the best way possible, a way that truly honors you. Father, we do pray for, for this country. We pray for those who are in positions of leadership. We pray for, for, for those who are in Washington. We pray for those in every single state of this union. We pray for all of the citizens. We, we pray for, for all of those who, who come to this country seeking something better. We pray for all who, who desire to enjoy the freedoms that this country has had through the years. Father, we ask that not only you bless this nation, but Father, we, we know that your blessings pour out on every single nation of the world. We, we know that you do not have a singular nation that you look to with favor. And we thank you for sending Jesus for the world so that, so that all might be able to come into saving grace. And so we thank you for that continued blessing, Father, and ask again that we might be able to represent those blessings, to represent the freedom that we have in Christ in a way that would bring honor and glory to you. Father, give us peace during tumultuous times. Allow us to rejoice during those times we need to rejoice. Allow us to, Father, allow us to weep during those times where we need to weep. But through it all, Father, allow us to remember where our true allegiance lies with you. In the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 28, it's a passage that you know very well. It's one of those you probably remember from Sunday school. You heard it at home. Maybe it was put up on the wall somewhere in grandma's kitchen. Jesus came to his disciples and said, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus' final direction to his followers was to go and make more followers. In essence, he said, don't let what I began end, well, don't let it end with me, and don't let it end with you. The first students of Jesus were to teach others to be students of Jesus. But notice he did not leave the content of their lessons up to them. He said, teach these new disciples. Teach them to obey all the commands that I have given you. And his most recent command, as we studied last week, was to love one another as he had demonstrated that same love. Friends, as followers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, we have not been called to make America great again. And we have not been called to build back better. We have been called to call others to be followers of Jesus. To preach and to practice loving each other as Jesus loved us. The primary task of the community of Christ is is not to gain or, or wield power over the unbelieving world. Neither are we called to dominate the political communities that do not accept Christian claims. Simply put, saving America is not the mission of the church. And this is going to stay up on the screen for a few minutes so we can look at that a little bit and internalize it. Friends, the moment our love or concern for country takes precedent over our love for the people in our country or our world, then we are off mission. And we cannot, as Christians, put more energy into advancing a political platform than we do in advancing the cause of Christ. And understand, this is not a message, this is not a matter of patriotism, but of priority. Nation changing was never part of Jesus' agenda. His agenda was broader, and and it was more challenging than rescuing any one nation. His agenda encompassed all the nations, specifically making disciples of the people who lived in all the nations. It might be surprising to learn that while Jesus often stopped to meet the immediate needs of individuals, did you know that he suggested no permanent solutions for any of the of his society's biggest problems. He made no effort to fix the system through the routes and rebellion that were being promoted then and even today by some who advocate change. And there was so much, understand, that needed to be fixed. But while Jesus refused to fix or even address the, the systemic inequalities that were rampant in first century Judea and Samaria and, and Galilee, he never missed the opportunity he never missed the opportunity to address an immediate need regardless of who it was or what created that need in the first place. I really like how author and pastor Emily Stanley has put it. He said for Jesus, a you always took precedence over a view. But that just seems so it just seems so what? An American I mean, after all, don't we need to leverage our beliefs and views in order to bring about change? We say, don't we need to to ban certain actions, and and don't we need to pack courts? Don't we need to take all of our theological eggs and and put them in some political basket? Because after all, we say, that's what the other side does, whoever the other side is, and we don't want to be left behind, and we don't want to be left out, now, can you hear the fear that's present within those statements? We are afraid of missing out. And we're afraid of losing out. And we're afraid of our beliefs being pushed out. And this fear encourages us to place our faith in the person, in the party, or in the platform that promises to protect our way of life. And the dirty secret that no one likes to talk about, if there's a part of us That fear is not being in charge. And there's a part of us that really wants to be in power. We want power so that we can enact our change. We want power so we can enact our beliefs and our laws. We want power so that we can have our empire. In fact, some Christians actually believe this to be their mission. And so we basically adopt the techniques and responses of our non-Christian friends and family. And so we post and we tweet and we march and we boycott. And so we shut down and we cancel out. And their methods have become our methods. And you know, all this would probably be fine. All this would probably be fine and good if Jesus had just said, I'm going to leave it up to you to decide what's the best route to go to expand the kingdom. I'm just going to leave it up to you to best decide how to advance the kingdom mission and how to best represent the church, how to best bring about change in our world. But he didn't leave that up to me. He didn't leave it up to you. He didn't leave it up to any of us. And unless we believe that we know better than Jesus, then maybe we should consider doing what he taught and modeled. So once when two... Young students came to Jesus requesting to be elevated to positions of power over all the others. Jesus called them together and said this. He said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority with those under, under them. Said, you know this, right? He said, but among you, among my students, among my followers, among you it's going to be different. My people are going to be different. Because whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others. And to give his life a ransom for many. Guys, I think we need to begin to understand that Jesus did not come to win. He didn't come to win. He actually came to lose. And that is the scandal of Christianity. The scandal of Christianity is that we exalt a beaten and naked and crucified Jesus as Lord and King. And the Apostle Paul would point out that when he preached a crucified Christ, the Jews were offended by that. And the Gentiles, well, they thought it was all nonsense. I mean, who follows that leader? Who worships that God? But he said to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And look, I know it seems incongruent and it seems counterintuitive, but Jesus did not come to win as the world defines victory, and his students, his followers, Christians, were asked to join the losing cause. But we want to win, right? I mean, I love to win. Man, yeah, I, I, I love it. I, I, I dislocated a guy's collarbone in college playing intramural football. I didn't do it on purpose. I didn't feel bad about it. Because he was one of their best players. And guess what? When they had to cart him off the field in the gator, I knew that we were this much closer to victory. So I prayed for him, wished him well, told him to rub some dirt on it. Off he went. We want to win. That's just ingrained in many of us. However, when winning replaces following, when winning replaces following, we are able to sanctify all matter of un-Jesus-like means to justify the end. We become quick to speak and slow to think. We criticize unbelievers for behaving like unbelievers. We criticize other believers without ever talking to them first. We rebrand slander as truth-telling. We claim and we defend and we sue to ensure that our rights take property over defending the rights of others. We believe the worst. We rejoice when our enemies stumble. And saving America takes precedence over loving the American next door or the foreigner who's next door. then winning has replaced following. So you listen to this and you say, all right, so so Chris, does this mean that there's nothing that Christians can do to influence our nation? Absolutely not. That's not what I'm getting at. But we must remember that our mission is to disciple people and our allegiance is to Christ and not a country. Jesus taught no one can serve two masters. For you will hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and you will despise the other. And, guys, for too long, far too many Christians have despised their master by co opting and recruiting him to bless the political party or platform of their choice. Guys, there are no Christian Republicans, there are no Christian Democrats because you can't have two masters. The cause of Christ does not have a political party, it has a church, and the church is to bear allegiance to Christ. So Jonathan Lehman in his book, How the Nations Rage, remind us that Christians are, are heaven's ambassadors and our churches are its embassies. He says neither panic nor triumph becomes us. A cheerful confidence does. He says we represent this heavenly future kingdom now, whether the skies are cloudy or clear. And guys, the way that we declare our allegiance to this heavenly kingdom, I I know it's going to sound strange, but it's not by becoming culture warriors, but it's by calling the culture to Christ. The term culture warrior or culture war was first used in 1991. 1991 by University of Virginia sociologist James Davison Hunter. In his words concerning the divisions within society, this is what he said. He says, on all sides... On every side, the contenders are generally sincere, thoughtful, and well-meaning, but but they operate with fundamentally opposing visions of the meaning of America and what America has been and what it is and what it should be. And he pointed out that in a culture war, a dispute takes place between groups who hold fundamentally differing views of the world. And so what we then do, we, we we try through our political system because that's how our nation is set up, We try through our politics to make sure then that our view of the world wins out. We have a certain view of what we want for our nation, for our country, for our world, and we go full bore into it. But if you think about it, no one ever wins the culture war. And actually, winning is not even the goal. The goal is warring. The goal is warring, it's not winning. That's why even though your side might win a particular election or might achieve a specific court ruling, the very next day, the fear of the other side is rising up and striking back on the latest headlines because we fear the other. We fear the other, the other side, the other opinion, the other worldview, the other person. And because we're afraid, well, we divide. And you know that there are some who feel more comfortable with And believe they have more in common with people who share their political views than people who share their faith in Christ? Now look, differences are inevitable. But division is a choice. And that's why I said earlier that a a divided nation and a divided world needs to see a united church. I think it bears pointing out I think it bears pointing out that Jesus' refusal to take signs in the cultural wars of his day was not because he lacked opinions or conviction, right? Have you ever wanted to say, well, Jesus just didn't stand up for what was right? Have you ever wanted to say, well, Jesus just never spoke his mind enough? No, he had opinions and he had convictions and he wasn't afraid to take a stand. But Jesus knew what we can't seem to get our heads around That when the church chooses a side as defined by any political party, we have chosen to side against the people on the other side. Right? Does that make sense? You cannot make disciples of people that you demonize publicly and labels as enemy of the faith or of the state. Who's going to listen to us? Who's going to hear our message? As Ed Stetzer asserts, You cannot hate people and engage them with the gospel at the same time. You can't war with people and show the love of Jesus. You can't, he says, be both outraged and on a mission. Guys, I know this is heavy stuff, but it's stuff that we need to consider and talk about. Because the problem with the culture wars is that they're always casualties. And if and when the church leads the faithful into battle, the casualty is always the faith of the next generation. Barner Research has revealed that 71% of individuals with no faith, and the majority of those are are under the age of 45. But 71% of individuals with no faith, and the majority of those who have dropped out of church, again, majority of those under the age of 50, They view Christians as being too political. And those under the age of 50, those of you who are in this room, you're under the age of uh, of 50, you have witnessed the culture wars up close and personal for the last 30 years. And and as a result, as a result, those those nuns, and, and as a result, those people who have walked away They have walked away from church communities of all flavors and of all denominations because they do not believe that church embodies the ethic of Jesus. And many have chosen to actually go stand on the opposite side of the culture war battle. See, the problem is that some have come to believe, some have come to believe that righteousness can only be achieved through legislation and that our rabbi Jesus must be defended. Now, I seem to remember someone losing an ear once, but that's another story. Some have come to believe that we must harness the power of the state in order to change the behavior of the people. Friends, have we forgotten that no system of government and no political platform and no bill and no law or mandate can change a human heart? And it is the heart that must be changed. Jesus told us that out of a person's heart, out of a person's heart comes evil thoughts in sexual immorality in theft in murder in adultery in greed and wickedness and deceit and lustful desires and envy and slander and pride and foolishness he says all of these vile things come from within and he says they defile the person so imagine what would happen imagine what would happen if the church refused to take sides politically Abandon our cultural war mentality and fearlessly and politically incorrectly addressed matters of the heart. What, what if we realigned our teaching and preaching and discipleship around Jesus and his new covenant command to love one another as I have loved you? What if we spent less time focusing on laws and more time focusing on the heart of the people those very laws impact I mean, after all, when it comes to our legal system, just because something is legal does not mean it's spiritual. Legality does not equal righteousness. And at the same time, sinfulness does not equate with criminality. Just because something is inconsistent with Christian discipleship does not mean that it must be against a nation's laws. Because our nation is not God's kingdom. Not everyone is a disciple of Jesus. Not everyone recognizes the authority of God on their lives. And trust me, you don't want to live in a country where the government rules by religious fiat. I mean, I guess it's great when when everybody in power believes what you believe, but what happens when those in power carry a different belief? And guys, what happens when your neighbor or your in-laws or your daughter or your grandson or another Christian has a different belief? We must be willing to resist the pull of partisanship that says it's one way or another and that really says it's my way or the highway. Instead, how about we give in to the new covenant command of Christ? How about as Christians we love each other as Jesus loves us? How about as Christians we... We stand apart from the legislative and executive and judicial and political to address the hearts of those elected to fill those essential and critical roles. As Christians, we must model compassion, generosity, and empathy for those who are negatively impacted by the consequences of their own decisions, as well as those who are suffering from the unintended consequences of the imperfect systems in which we live. You say, but that's... You say, Chris, that's just not how, that's just not how we do it. That's that's just not how we do it. And you're right. That is not how a lot of Christ followers have done it in recent years. But let me ask you, what do we have to show for it? More disciples? As the Christian's community as, they, as, as we all have leaned more into politics over the last few years, has it caused more individuals to give their life over to God? Have we had more baptisms because of the way that we encourage people to vote? Has leaning into the political expanded God's kingdom? Has arguing on social media turned more hearts to Christ where people said, oh, I, I see you love me by the way that you shout me down. I want to follow your Jesus. Jesus. Has politicizing the spiritual produced the fruit of the spirit? Author Alan Kreider describes in his book the patient ferment of the early church. He describes how discipleship increased among those first believers in Jesus. He says, according to evidence at our disposal, the expansion of the churches was not organized nor the product of a mission program. It simply happened. Further, the growth was not carefully thought through. They proliferated, he says, because the faith of these fishers and hunters embodied what was attractive to people who were dissatisfied with their old culture and religious beliefs, who felt pushed to explore new possibilities and who then encountered Christians who embodied a new manner of life that pulled them, he says, that pulled them toward what the Christians called rebirth into a new life. He concludes, the sources rarely indicate that the early Christians grew in number because they won arguments. Instead, they grew because of their habitual behavior rooted in a patience in God that was distinctive and intriguing. So church, what I'm asking you this morning is how attractive has your behavior been over these last few days? How attractive has your behavior been over these last few months and years? Or, as many within our culture, have you been more political than spiritual? Have you been more focused on issue winning than on disciple making? Have you allowed recent political decisions to impact your spiritual health? If so, it could be that you have an allegiance problem. And here's an easy way to find out. This 4th of July, are you more concerned about your neighbor's political views than their faith? Or how about if I ask it this way? Are you more concerned with your child's political views than their faith? Does that question at all create some tension in the room with you? Does it create tension as you struggle with, with what you've heard at work, what people say, and, and, and what you've been having conversations with people in your family or, or things that have gone on there at the ball field? Is there a tension as you think about what's more important to me, politics or, or faith? Well, if you say, and if you just are honest and you say, you know what, I think it's the politics then maybe you're discovering that your politics are contending, are contending for your lordship. Perhaps your political party of choice has become your primary identity marker rather than your faith in Jesus. And I know that we struggle with this because we have really been good at proof texting our political views. And we are certain that Jesus would be in our party. We know he would be. But he's not Republican. And Jesus is not Democrat. And Jesus isn't even American. And guys, he calls us to rise above the earth the us versus them mentality. And he calls us to rise above the left or right, the liberal or conservative debate. Our nation, guys, our nation like every other nation of the world has a heart problem. We have a heart problem. And no system of government and no political platform. And like I said earlier, there is no bill and no law and no mandate that can change the human heart. Only Jesus can do that. And the only way that this country and this world, the only way that there's going to be change is not by increasing the number of Republicans or Democrats, but by increasing the number of disciples. Jesus does have something to say about the issues in our world. He does have something to say about the issues that are dividing and alienating our society. And friends, as a church, look, we can speak to the issues of race, and sexuality, and inequality, and mental health, and issues of life and death. We can speak to all of these issues without taking political sides. And as a follower, as Jesus' followers, we can continue to live out Jesus' kingdom ethic of love and righteousness, sharing both grace and truth without alienating 50% of our society. Nation changing was never part of Jesus' agenda, his agenda was greater, his agenda was broader. It wasn't about rescuing any one nation. His agenda was about restoring all the nations of the world and drawing all the people of the world to Him. And guys, that's what we've been called to do. That's what we've been called to do. That is our mission as disciples. It's that simple. Oh, I know it's complex, but it's that simple. So I want to encourage you this morning to declare your allegiance to Christ and give yourself over completely to his holy cause because our nation will be blessed and better when you do. Will you join me again in prayer? Father, again, we pray to you this weekend where we celebrate. We celebrate the nation that has afforded us so many privileges and advantages and blessings. And Father, we are thankful for being citizens of this land and for all of the different things that we are able to enjoy because of that. But Father, help us to keep things in perspective. Help us to keep our allegiance where it should be as followers of your son, as worshipers of you. Help us not to get so caught up in the system of this nation and of this world that we sacrifice the mission that you have given to us. Father, allow us to be disciples that will produce good citizens. Allow us to be disciples that will produce citizens in this country that will serve first, that will love, that again, will forgive, that will, that will seek another's interest before our own. Father, allow our hearts to be changed. So that as we are encouraging others to consider a heart change through you, we would not be hypocritical ourselves. Father, forgive us for those times where in our exuberance and in our enthusiasm to defend Jesus, to defend you, to stand up for your word, that we have gone about it in ways that are more, or that more resemble our culture than your spirit. Father, we pray for other opportunities, for other opportunities to to speak your word and to declare your message, to talk about your kingdom, and to live out that kingdom ethic in our neighborhoods. Father, we believe that it can can truly change. It could change us. It could change our neighbors. It could change our community, our city. It could change our state. It could change our nation. Father, your kingdom can change this world. We thank you for not abandoning us in this place. We thank you for not leaving it all up to our own ingenuity and for whatever we want to do. Father, thank you for for giving us a mission. Thank you for giving us a calling. May we be true to it, and may our nation be blessed because of it. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Guys, like I said earlier, This is one of those put on your big boy pants kind of messages, and I get that. And I know I didn't hear a lot of amens that were going on. (laughs) And I know that as you're leaving here today, there there are some of you that are gonna go out a different door. There are some of you that are gonna come right to me. If you have concerns about anything that was said today, I'll be glad to give you a copy of the manuscripts. Be glad for you to be able to look at that. I'll be glad to talk with you about any of the things that were discussed. Guys, our our country's divided. We don't have to be. Differences are inevitable. Division is a choice. I pray that we would choose to be disciples of Jesus and to follow where he leads. That is the light that needs to shine. And so that's what we're going to sing about as we close out this time together. We're going to sing, shine, Jesus, shine. And if you would like to be baptized into Christ this morning, we would love to celebrate with you as you come to make that known. If you'd like to come this morning and just be honest and say, you know what? I, I, I've been there. I, I jumped in that political well, and I got so caught up in it that, that I, lost, I lost my mission. We'd love to pray with you. If you'd like to go and speak to one of our elders it would be in the back room, there in our prayer room just outside in our lobby, if you'd like to just have some one-on-one time, we'd love for you to have that. Guys, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, and as such, you have been called to go make other disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's let that be our mission this week and every week as we stand and give praise to God.